0: back to the ninth episode of Studio Break. I'm your host, Dave Linaway. Today, I'll be sharing an interview I did recently with Michael Willie from the studio. We looked at his recent work for episodes, which opens up December 2nd at Violet Poe Projects in Bloomington, Illinois. And if you're hoping for a thorough explanation of Mike's recent growing of a beard, you'll be sadly disappointed. But plenty of conversation about art, painting, abstraction, all coming up, so stay tuned. Happy to be sitting here with Mike Willie in his lovely uh, paint-covered studio floor. How you doing, Mike? Doing okay, Dave. Thanks for inviting me to be a part of this. And so we're now starting on, I believe, what is the ninth edition of Studio Break, and have some questions for Mike, but um, just to kind of get us started, if you could just kind of talk a little bit about um, where you grew up and what your experiences were like growing up. You mean
1: when I was a kid? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you could tell
0: people where you're from, for example. Well, I grew up in uh,
1: I grew up in Pontiac, Illinois, which is uh, for those of you that aren't from within 15 miles of Pontiac, which is pretty much everybody. Uh, it's a small town, 15,000 people. You've probably heard of our maximum security prison. I played little league baseball right across the street from uh, death row uh, at the state correctional center. Uh, a town of about twelve thousand people, um, you yeah, know, the third of six kids in the Willie clan up there.
0: And so I, I know just because if anybody knows Mike, he's a he's a big baseball fan, big really? sports fan in general. But th- so did you just play baseball when you were young too? No, uh, I kind of played them
1: all. Uh, I mean, any sport that was available. But you know, the, the unique thing in a town the size of Pontiac, you know, you don't get to play lacrosse or hockey or you know, sports like that, you only get to, you know, the pretty much football, baseball, basketball, sure. running, you know, track, cross country. So I did a lot of that. I played football through high school, baseball,
0: through a couple of years of college. Uh, but pretty much any sport. So well, when did, when did you start getting interested in, I guess, art and studying art then while you're doing that? You know, I think I'm
1: not – I was never that kid that uh, – uh, I wasn't that kid – in a sense, like my kids that are drawing all the time and, you know, working with watercolors and this and that. I I never really got into it. Uh, I did it in school like everybody else, but I never... uh, I remember about seventh or eighth grade uh, just deciding to start copying the Sunday comics or something like that. Not indifferent from many other people, but up until that point. You know, I I think I learned... It's, I, I don't have a, a, a kind of a crazy story. I think, you know, up until I was about 19 years old, I think sports ruled the roost in my brain. So, and in a sense, getting into art was one of those things that kind of related to that. Instead of, you know, I'm 36 years old now. Instead of being almost retired in sports, you know, in art, you know, you're kind of just getting going. So right, in yeah. a way, that was a translation for me. Uh, the idea of you know, working on your craft as an athlete and translating that into working your craft as an artist.
0: Sure. So. Well, it's certainly just, I mean, the... I kind of describe it almost like training, you know, in, in terms of studying, you know, it, rather than just being like some kind of, I don't know, machine or something, you know, that you really have to kind of work at it and kind of train to be an artist or, you know, a, a baseball player or something like that.
1: Yeah, I mean, they're you know, not to... Uh, not to take the metaphor too far, but, you know, there's... There, there, there's a... Uh, uh, well, maybe in the... I'm pausing here because I think I'm taking the metaphor too far. You know, oh, which funny. is... Well, it's it's the idea that... My God, and the last thing I want is an hour-long interview talking about <laughs> the relationship between sports <laughs> and art. And, you know, it, it, it with art, there's... Art nowadays, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this as the interview goes along, but so much of this is contextual, you know, where you can't just go out, I don't believe, I mean, maybe others would disagree with me, but you can't just go out and make a pretty picture, you know, in baseball, if you can hit a 95 mile an hour pitch, that's a home run. Right, right. Like, you're, you know, I mean, not not necessarily a home run, but if you can hit a 95 mile an hour fastball, you're doing okay in 1955, in 1985, 2011 so less information I mean I could argue all the contextual information in baseball but it's different than art you know now there you, you can't I don't believe you can make a painting without having a clear awareness of the history of art making before you so that being said it's, a, it's an intellectual process much more I think than it is a physical thing
0: but I, but I heard that it's 90% mental what, 10% what? physical in sports, so I mean, is it like 95% in art making? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I think, you know, you got to remember too, sports is the place where they keep
1: telling you you have to give 140% now. Sure, There's yeah. no 100% anymore, I guess, unless you do the, you know, my mom's a math teacher, so maybe she's the one saying, well, actually, if you were only giving 80% before, you can give 120% because 120% of 80% is actually what? Right. And then it becomes... It's a math game <laughs>
0: that I don't really want to get into. Sure, sure. No, and obviously we don't we don't <laughs> have to dwell on on sports all that much, but we'll probably come back to it. I'm no, knowing you. Um, well, you've got a list of questions
1: there well, that uh, do, needs do. me to think. You're ready to go. So,
0: well, and, and so you know when you when you decided to go to college and, and kind of uh, choose a career path. I mean, was that was that what you started out as? Is, is somebody that was going to study art or?
1: Yeah, I went to Millikan University in Decatur. I went to it's a uh, liberal arts undergraduate institution. Um, I uh, I thought I was going to be, you know, I mean, I, I thought I was going to be a graphic designer. I thought I was going to go and uh, teach art in high school, and I thought I was going to be a head football coach at some high school, running graphic design in the evenings. I don't know how I was going to fit all this stuff in, but so I went and did the. It, although my first semester there, I did all the stuff to be communications, uh, communications major as well, because I thought maybe I'd get into journalism or something like that. Um, but then, you know, a couple weeks into the semester, I thought, you know, a lot of that was based on the trepidation of uh, the fear that maybe I just wasn't good enough as a drawer or as an artist. So, you know, after realizing, at least in that field of competition, so to speak, that group that I could hang... Uh, you know, I decided to drop the other stuff and just go full bore into art. But at the time, art for me meant graphic design, right, right. art education. But I, you know, the, the BFA program at a place like Milliken was such that, if I remember correctly, you needed 60 credits in art, 12 of which were foundations, and beyond that, you could fill the other 48 hours with anything. I mean, there's nuance to this, but with anything you want. So I took seven semesters of figure drawing, four semesters of painting, printmaking, and some other courses, but I never took a 3D class after that. It was just, uh, after 3D fundamentals, and I tried like a madman to not have to take that class as well, because I had no interest in making three-dimensional art. I just, I really felt like my job was, if I were to go out there and teach, and maybe this is a beginning premise to getting in more invested in painting and drawing, but If I'm going to teach, I damn well better know what the hell I'm doing. Meaning if I can't draw from observation, if I don't have those chops, you know, as a musician would say, I I would never be able to get the respect of a classroom student. So I put a lot of energy into drawing from observation, uh, whether it be the figure of still life. or Even the first two semesters of painting were all observational painting. So I feel like I got a pretty good grounding in that before I kind of made the move into making my own body of work as an abstract painter.
0: Well, and so by the end of that, then, I mean, you decided, you know, I'm going to continue this in graduate school? Well, yeah, but I
1: mean, somewhere along the line, there was a shift into, I really don't want to do this art education thing, but I'm far enough along. I come from a long line of teachers in my family. You know, the whole fall back on thing. I mean, I could have a nice life right now being, you know, a... High school baseball coach, art teacher in the you know Chicago public schools, or something like that. Right now, I mean, I think of it from time to time. That would be that would have been a, the other life choice I probably could have made. Um, so I mean, I, I I decided you know somewhere in there that <clears throat> you know making a body. Frankly, I think it has all to do with art history. You know, once I started taking art history courses and getting more. Aware of how, you know, what the trajectory of our history has, you know, what that meant today or I don't even know if I, I was there yet, but the idea that I, I, I really fell in love with, you know, the 1950s Abstract painting and started reading a lot about Clement Greenberg and that sort of thing to, and this was, you know, 20, 21 years old. Falling in love with artists like Richard Diebenkorn and all those other, you know, kind of mid-50s painters. And all of a sudden, my mind, without even, you know, act, tactically uh, going after it, I, I found myself in a situation where all I thought about was really, you know, this is when I had left baseball behind. Didn't really care as much about the art education route and uh, just found myself Putting a lot of energy into my own practice, you know, yeah. logging long hours in the studio each week, and really thinking of myself in those terms.
0: So, and so by the time that you started, and just you could tell us where you went to school if you'd rather do the test Oh, you mean for grad school then? Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I I went, but beforehand, I went between undergrad and grad school, I moved out to the Zuni Indian Reservation in New Mexico. Okay. So I taught third grade out there for a little while, really not having as much to do with teaching, but more having to do with a great life experience to be, you know, to move into a, a different cultural environment that more than likely I wouldn't have another chance in my life to get to do so to go out there and be one of only a handful of non-zuni, uh, non-indigenous, sure. You know, a Caucasian, uh, in that world to try to figure out, you know, not really try to figure anything out, but really to just observe to be to, to, kind of live a life. The first time I was kind of away from central Illinois and then after that, I mean, we could spend three hours just talking about that, but for the sake of any listeners oh, that are listening right now, I'll move on. And well, I
0: well, and I'm, I'm curious because, you know, you, you talked, you know, obviously in the, in the beginning, you know, seven-figure drawing classes, and yeah. I'm just curious what, you know, what your work looked like when you started graduate school, you know. did you, Yeah. Had you already moved past I mean, very any kind of representation? Oh, sure, or, sure,
1: yeah. My last year of undergraduate school, believe it or not, I was, you know, I was a figure painter and I had gotten much more interested in the backgrounds of my figure paintings than I was the figures and I remember going out with my roommates uh, out to the University of Iowa to see one of my roommates, one of his buddies from Chicago and we, uh, I went over to the art museum and saw that Jackson Pollock painting that he made for Peggy Guggenheim, that nine foot by what, 42 feet long painting and I remember standing in front of it and being moved, you know, at the risk of sounding corny, I was really moved by that piece and I had put been thinking quite a, quite heavily about you know that, that move that depending on the institution you go to as an undergraduate student you know making that move into your own body of work feeling freedom I mean I think about this all the time now as a as a, as a painting faculty member that you know greasing the skids so to speak for the students to feel like they can do their thing that they are not going to have to you know pass through some toll booth to get to the kind of work that they want to make. I mean, within the curriculum, of course, and if that's the toll booth, I guess, then it is. But I'm thinking more of the neighborhood of when you're expected, when you're at that level, your senior year, what have you, of making your own body of work, depending on the institution that can be happening in your sophomore or junior year as well. But the idea that you've you've got to feel an ownership over the work you make. So in my case, when I'm standing in front of that Pollock painting, Thinking already how much I wanted to be an abstract painter, in a sense, that was the moment that kind of tipped the scales. And I, literally, that same day, I got back to Decatur, Illinois, to Milliken, and uh, went into the studio late that night and just, you know, started f- trashing a, another painting and turning,
0: getting rid of it, basically obliterating
1: the figure and turning it into a, a, a an abstract painting. And so, to, but to answer your question. When I had applied to grad school, I was making basically derivative, uh, you know, Richard Diebenkorn type paintings, uh, putting a lot of energy into intuitive color choices, uh, seeking a certain kind of, you know, basically lifting his vocabulary from anything anybody's ever heard him or anybody write about him, but lifting this vocabulary of searching for this intuitive rightness that seems definitely right out of that. You know, 1950s Bay Area or even ABEX uh, school of thought. So that's really, you know, and then the first couple weeks of grad school at Bowling Green State University in Northwest Ohio. Uh, I remember sitting in the studio and my, you know, drawing faculty member Charlie Canwisher came in, you know, and first of all, the other, you know, another painting faculty member Dennis Boykevich came in and he was you know, I still think about this, you know, where he came in, he's like, so how the hell do you want me to think about these? How do you want me to look at these? What what, what are these about? I mean, just like those three questions that are basically saying, I don't know what I'm looking at. Talk, to, talk me through this. Right. And I didn't have a clue as to how to do that. And Charlie came in maybe like the next day. Who knows, they may have been, you know, tag teaming and, uh, <laughs> you know, collaborating on how to like, you know, flip me over on the grill a few times. But, you know, Charlie walked in and, you know, based on how I was talking about my work, he put a lot of thought into or the conversation revolved around somehow translating that historical vocabulary that I was working with and somehow making it my own, somehow uh, thinking about what the next branch on that family tree would look like. So frankly, in a sense, I've been thinking about that effort, that that, that conversation, you know, not directly but really trying to think about how not even the work now that we're sitting in front of. I mean there's a there's a certain relationship between the history of painting versus what I'm doing right. as a, as a contemporary painter and how those are linked, maybe not maybe more of a love hate thing than just a love thing, because I think back then it was just a I don't know if I have the confidence to be able to make a I don't know if I have the ability, the formal ability to do some of that stuff. Whereas that is gone now. I'm not worried about that so much as I am. uh, What am I doing with that vocabulary? What does utilizing certain ubiquitous vocabulary that may be sampled or lifted right out of the history of painting and utilizing it over again in 2011 and making 125 pieces in front of us that kind of talk about something different than that? But it it looks like less. come on.
0: <laughs> sure. um, well, and, you know, and one thing that I just wanted to kind of bring up there, just too, because, um, you know, I, I really respond to that idea of, you know, getting people prepared to be able to to kind of use undergraduate as like a jumping off point, and kind of coming from well, where I, where I came from ISU, and knowing that there's you know some some relationship with some of these these programs. I, I mean, I think that that drive and work ethic um, is such a huge component of that. And I think especially, like, even in terms of trying to figure out, you know, where you're beginning in graduate school and these, you know, these, these professors are coming in and kind of just throwing these, these questions out there. You know, I, I can kind of really respond to that idea of, you know, reacting to it. It, just, it sounds like basically what you did. Um, and so I mean, what was that transition like then in terms of uh, figuring that out a little bit more? I, I know that, you know, for anybody that might know your work, and maybe are familiar with its evolution over a long period of time. I mean, how did you move from making these paintings that were, you know, a little bit more arbitrary? I guess uh, maybe that's not the, the word that you use, but you know what I mean? Something that's more intuitive, like you talked about in terms of color, to making them more more specific to something. Um, or, you know, how did you begin to start developing, you know, the language that you became interested in? Well, I... Uh...
1: Why there's, like, 12 questions wrapped up in that. Um, (laughs) Because I think the answer is, uh, I'm, from something, like, it's weird, because in a weird way, I think what we're sitting in front of right now is, if I'm hearing your terms right now, I'm just going to say, you know, arbitrary, we'll call this intuitive, you know, searching, seeking, and, you know, uh, uh, Whereas, like, the specific, I spent probably seven or eight years, you know, and maybe this is what you're referring to, where the work, these would be seemingly abstract paintings that would be pulled from a source. You know, uh, I I made, uh, I don't know, over the course of a decade, a number of maybe 70, 80, 100 paintings, something like that, of a city block in Cleveland, Ohio. So I would use that source to make work, yet they would become abstract. Right. So, you know, that's kind of, if anybody's, you know, has an understanding of Thomas Neskowski I mean some of you know when I was finishing up grad school he gave a lecture at CAA out in New York I think it was New York but he was talking about the series of paintings he was making between I think his studio and a place in upstate New York I believe it was one of his relatives grades or something like that where 105 miles and every 5 miles he made a painting about that spot and it just stuck. struck me as they don't look like the place but somehow that was an impetus to make work it was a prompt it was a you know it was a, a source but maybe less a a, a a a physical source and more of a a driving factor that he wanted to be, the tone of this work so in know in a way what i tried to do was kind of think about my own experiences and pull from my own surroundings and my wife being from cleveland having spent a lot of time out there even this holiday week you know we were out there <clears throat> put a lot of energy into thinking about that place uh so I started with that as a source and then I, you know, but but then the point, the you know, it's funny, I think as an artist, we always end up in these scenarios where we know the questions that are going to be asked of yourself, you know, mm-hmm. when, when, and then you try to utilize your studio practice in a way to answer some of those kind of, you, it, maybe even your own critical feedback in your own head. And I knew, I got to a certain point where I thought, In a sense, I think I was BSing myself for a while, thinking that I was making work about a place, when I think really what I was doing is making paintings about making paintings. Right. And in a weird way, I think what I'm doing now is more connected to what I was doing in grad school, which was thinking of myself as a non-objective painter, where the issues wrapped around a body of work or an individual painting, for that matter, had as much to do with the work around it, the other work in that series, and the relationship that that painting has to other paintings that are out there in this world. Instead of saying, trust me, cross your fingers and hope that, you know, you follow what I'm saying, but that crazy geometric painting right. is somehow, you know, like uh, the, the facade of a uh, steel mill. Right, right. And trust me on that. Even though you can't see it, I'm you know I'm, I'm being overly sarcastic when I say this because who knows? In five years, maybe I'll go back to that that sort of thing. But over the last two years, I mean, it really took you know not had, when I went to South Africa in 2009 for part of my sabbatical uh, in a city of Peter I didn't have all the source material, and I had very limited time to get there to make a body work as a visiting artist. There, they gave me a studio. And I walked, you know, got off the plane and didn't know what kind of work I was going to make. And I wanted to utilize source material because that was kind of the premise of that program. They wanted you to uh, make work about being there, you know, as a, mm-hmm. as a as a foreigner, so to speak. So when I made work there, you know, that was in a sense the last time I made work about a place. You know, right. I'm using quotes, you know.
0: Okay. Uh
1: but I, it started where I, I didn't have a projector. I didn't have, you know, sure, sure. I just basically had my iPhone, and I'm running around snapping photographs, and I'm drawing from the screen of my iPhone, not traced like I did a lot of my Cleveland right. ones. So the the trace, the the the, uh, the the reference was, you know, tweaked quite a bit, right? Uh, and it got to the point where it, was, it became much more non objective.
0: Well, and, and and just to kind of clarify this, because I want to, I don't want to just leave some some Michael. Michael Willie bodies work in completely un- untouched. So, I mean, but there, just to make sure, I mean, there, there were some that were like based on a lot of ballparks. Well, that, like, there was, think you, didn't you also do like a, a something in like Rome or? or yeah. Yeah. Well, like uh, summer of 2002,
1: Jillian, my wife, before she was my wife, we spent the summer, part of the summer anyway, in Rome where she was a grad student at Tyler in Philadelphia, or I guess at the time Elkins Park, you know, it's Philly, but, uh, um, so she took an art theory class over there, and I uh, basically had an apartment. We had our apartment, half of it we turned into my studio, so I was making work. And it really started there to think about these terracotta roof tiles. And uh, so th- I was interested in geometric patterns of abstraction. Um, and I, boy, this is, it's, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but basically, no, no, in a no, nutshell, I, I, I wanted to make these patterns based on the light and color of Rome and this Mediterranean thing and and really thinking about the roof tile as a, as a source not only a source to make a painting but a, an object that was very different it, it was very common there because we were you know the, the type of indigenous clay in the earth right there was easier for them to make those materials whereas we think of that same terracotta roof tile as either something from Mexico or something from you know places where terracotta, you know, clay is much right. more easily readily available for those those locations. So, meaning you see them in the North Shore or something like that around Chicago and it's like a nicer, more right. upper class kind of thing. So, I was interested in this, this one thing, this terracotta tile, that in one culture means one thing and in another culture means another. So, thinking about the, the in a sense, the sociocultural relationship that that tile has on a variety of, you know, Environments that 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 became one of the driving factors to make that work. Sure. And then there was Cleveland. The city block I'm talking about is where the what at the time was called Jacobs Field. Now it's called Progressive uh, Progressive Field. That some like to call Regressive not, Field.
0: Not not progresso. Not progresso. Progressive. It should yeah. be kind of good.
1: Yeah, that's good. <laughs> uh, that would be one of the things since we're live and in person. If you said that over the phone, I would have said.
0: What? <laughs> <You> what? <know? laughs> well, and you know, and again, I realize because I'm just saying some of this stuff might be you know ancient to you in that regards, but you know, I'm really certainly curious about the way that some of those motifs and stuff come back, and you know, to kind of listen to you talk about you know these pieces, which again we'll, we'll, we'll do um, and also in a little bit more detail later when you tell us about this exhibition you've got coming up. Uh-huh. But you know, I can think back even to you know the show that you had at Arc, you know, like way way long ago. Um, yeah, and, and just knowing you at the time, just kind of burning through all these images. So it, it is, it's kind of interesting to see how that, that process has evolved. And, you know, in some ways we'll probably go back to other things or, you know, find new avenues, that kind of thing. And, and so that's what I'm just curious about yeah. that, that evolution, you know? No. And, and there's, you know, I'm, I'm actually pretty interested.
1: I don't know what the right word is, but I'm really happy to find myself in a spot where I'm not beating a dead horse. I'm not on the same stuff. I feel like with those Rome paintings, you know, they got to a point where there wasn't, I didn't have as much, um, I I don't feel like I had as much freedom with them anymore. They kind of began to, I don't know. I think they became stale to me. So I, but it took, you know, you don't just wake up one morning and say, those are stale. You kind of work through it all of a sudden, 18 months later, you're like, geez, what have I been doing for the last 18 months? Right. And, uh, I think I've I've, uh, worked through a lot of that to the point where now the work... I'm I'm genuinely, you know, thrilled to be in the studio uh, to... You know, I've just finished this project for the show at Violet Poe, and then I'm, you know, halfway through another show that's going to be in Peoria, uh, the Peoria Arts Guild, in February. So that's going to be this newer body of work, but not just black and white. But, you know, we're sitting... Right in front of four uh, big five-foot-by-five-foot five panels, gessoed and ready to go.
0: I, I thought maybe they'd just been sitting here for a
1: while. <laughs> um, they, they were on tabletops right where we're at right now. And out of courtesy to you, I
0: put them up on the wall. Well, thank, thanks for that. Um, and, and so I have, a, I have a fun question, I think, that's related. Um, so I've, I've heard from, from – I, I can't give my source away. Oh. I heard that Mike Willie will set his alarm clock to 4 in the morning come down here and and throw a layer of acrylic on, on a whole bunch of paintings. Is that is that true? Sure. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: there's a lot of layers to these and I'd like to sandwich them in between the. In many cases. Not so much in this body work, but a lot of paintings uh, the, everything will be sandwiched between coats of clear acrylic, you know, matte medium or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, I mean, so much of this has to do with drying time that if I I mean, this is a great segue into, I've got three kids, Right. I've got a full-time job, my wife has a demanding job as well, you know, we find ourselves in a spot where it's, it's finding time, and I'm not, I mean, I'm, I'm actually proud of the fact that from the moment we had our, maybe not the moment, but three or four months after my third child was born, you know, we're, she's 16 months now, so... You know, certainly the last year has been probably one of the more productive, not in terms of numbers, although I have worked, I have made a lot of paintings, but I'm really excited about where I'm at with the work. So what I'm, so I'm not trying to say, yeah, since I've had kids, I haven't been able to make any paintings. That could not be further from the truth. Right. What I'm trying to say is, you know, that meant I couldn't just on a day, you know, like on a Tuesday where I really try to give myself Tuesday and Thursday until about one o'clock. In the, you know, in the afternoon to be in the studio. So if I wake up at 4 and put some stuff down, you know, some clear acrylic down or peel tape or something like that, if I don't do that at 4 in the morning, that means the whole gist of that day is going to be based on, you know, putting, you know, doing a menial task and not getting to think. I really want to make sure that I drop the kids off at school, the other one at daycare, and uh, get back to the studio by eight ten in the morning, and I'm ready to think I don't want to just come in and be a bricklayer, you know, there's right, right. there's plenty of time that I have to be a bricklayer and then there's other times where I'm, you know, to use the metaphor of building that, you know, like designing the house. Right, right. So I've got to think about both of those, uh, you know, facets of, I mean, in addition to many more, but those are the two facets that I try to make sure that at four in the morning I can get up and lay brick. Right. I can't get up at four in the morning and
0: think, <laughs> sure. you know. Well, and so you talked a little bit about like the, the maybe the older work where you were kind of projecting. Yeah, and I guess just to kind of make it more permanent. I mean, what what is like a typical, typically like if you're working on a couple, of, do you work on a bunch of paintings at the same time? And then, yeah, I guess could you just kind of explain? You mean when I was, was doing a little bit? I mean, obviously we're talking about layering, you know, layering images and, and yeah. stuff like that. But I mean, is it all like drawn out and then? Now, my, my
1: my Cleveland paintings would have been, you know, so for that body of work. Um, I had, uh, the source material would be, there's probably a database right now, uh, or a folder, let's just call it. It's not a database, really. A folder of about 1,100 images taken over the course of about seven or eight years. Um, and 45 blueprints and other kind of diagrammatic maps that I have found you know, on, on, online or something like that. So putting up meaning with all that source material, I would, you know, call up the image, you know, open up the image on my, uh, uh, laptop. That's project. That's connected to a, uh, uh an Epson projector. And I would project it onto the image, onto the painting, onto the surface, trace it on since most of those. So I would distill, you know, not distort, but I would kind of flatten, mm-hmm. uh, tweak the scale or something like that make it bigger or smaller depending on what I was after and uh, trace it on so there would be these silhouettes and I would and in many cases I would even kind of write on there the color that I wanted it to be and then I would have and I, yeah I'd work on dozens of these at a time and then what I would do is kind of put them on the wall and, or you know in many cases what I would actually do is you know later on I would just cover the whole thing in blue tape and then trace over that, and then cut shapes out, and then squeegee paint over the top of that, right, right. and then peel the tape off so the paint would be really clean. You know, got to. I mean, I, it's, it's funny to me because when I started as a painter, I was really interested in abstract expressionism and this idea of gesture and the brush mm-hmm. and the mark and those things. You know, and it, it, and now I think of those things as having a, a, a it is in fact a signifier that that mark isn't just a mark. It means it's a stand-in for that particular type of painting. So if you work that way, your paintings inherently have that context, right? So uh, now I'm this guy that tries to think about, you know, a different way of utilizing the word gesture. So when I'm looking at all these paintings that are basically squeegee paint, which is very different than gestural brush, Mm. there's probably not a single moment up here where you can look up there and say there's a well maybe there are a couple actually there's a brush mark right, there's right. a brush mark right you know if anything they've been mediated so much that you don't even see them as brush marks anymore they're certainly not like physical ridges from brushes up here there might be the trace of that in one way shape or form based on how i mediate the image but <clears throat> i'm interested in the idea of gesture in a different way whether it's through the decalage of the paper or on my panels the way the paint kind of drips off the edge uh so in a weird way that's kind of maybe i'm sidetracking the conversation no, no, I think... but it's this idea that at one point one word meant one thing to me and, I'm, and, and knowing what that means contextually gesture i'm trying to think of it in a different way and, and to me the, the the process of painting is so wrapped up in the questions that we ask ourselves that it may not even be a An important question to anybody else, but and and the results may not be something that one would write a scholarly paper on. But the idea that I'm playing around with this idea of gesture and trying to think about what that word means to me goes back to even some of those original conversations I was having with faculty members in grad school, which is so, how are these yours? What does you know, instead of just kind of lifting, sampling everything from a, a particular era of painting. You know, as an abstract painter, I think it's really difficult because, you know, through representation, you have so many other signifiers you can lean on for meaning. So in a weird way, not in a weird way, but in a unique way, abstraction is this last bastion of the marks, the material, the layout, the organization, the way you're handling material really becomes the deciding or the the critical factor in developing meaning you can't use the same vocabulary to say, well, I'm using this because, you know, if you're standing at a portrait, you know, the, the as compared to standing in front of an abstract painting, and it's not to be little portraiture or be little abstraction or vice versa, you know, or you know, to make them one of them out to be better or worse than the other, but, you know, you can't help but think about a person when you look at a portrait. Abstraction is very different than that, where, you know, you have to come up with alternative... <coughs> alternative ways to interpret an image and those the the nuance involved in those questions are really what drives my practice to try to
0: lend credence to those questions and and i'm thinking those are all the reasons that you're still painting and not doing something else or you know uh, you know what i mean because again i mean there's a there's a lot of different avenues for for making artwork and oh sure especially especially being you know Going to school, studying about it, uh, having conversations about it, working with other people from different areas, I mean, you certainly kind of, you know, get exposed to it and can kind of think about it, but, you know, it sounds like a lot of those things are the reasons why, you know, there's still that interest in kind of figuring those things out and playing around with those things, yeah. which, you know, I think even just for myself, I mean, it's something that, you know, you can see easily anybody in their own word, you know, I mean, in terms of just those little nuances that you kind of know about yeah. and how they're kind of changing. Um and so, I mean, in terms of, like, supporting that, I mean, do you, do you still do um, other kinds of research then? Um, in terms of, you know, like, obviously, like, reading and, and such like that. But, I mean, is there other components that kind of find their way into the work? Um, I'm, I mean, I'm, to be honest, I'm really curious. Do you, do you draw all anymore still? You know, you talked, you talked a lot about observational drawing right. and figurative drawing and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of curious because, you know, for myself especially, um, I'm at the point in the semester with my drawing class where, I'm much more into sitting down sitting down and drawing because it's just like everybody's set up and ready to go. And so you know, it's like the, the longer that I've been teaching this, the more the more and more invested I am in drawing. So I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, because it doesn't have to be just a uh, reading, you know, whatever whatever the quarterly that's coming out or you know what I mean um, to kind of help inform the work. No drawing. No drawing. In a sense, these kind of started this project
1: that we're sitting in front of started as. I mean, how I even teach, you know, drawing, not drawing fundamentals or even life drawing one, but when we get to intermediate and advanced drawing, I'm much more interested in people, students framing, like intellectually framing what they do as having a drawing, quote unquote, bent to it than I am uh, saying, you must make a drawing. I'd rather them reframe what drawing means. So in a way, I think that this project, given the fact that most of the, not most, I'd say half the material up here is actually graphite. So it's like graphite mixed with medium, graphite mixed, graphite sanded, graphite mixed with, you know, (coughs) fluid acrylics, you know, to kind of create some of this stuff, and in addition to a lot of other materials, but most of these kind of flat, flatter black Flatter, silvery areas, and the way light impacts them is very much pulled from a drawing material. Right, right. So, no, I don't. I and and, I'm just. I don't know why. I mean, it's it's, curiosity. Yeah, and and, I, I, you know, but it's a question that I feel like I should have a a better handle on, other than the intuitive response, which is I just have never. It's been a while. I mean, I I don't mind doing demos and things like that, but.
0: Yeah, I don't know. No, I feel, I feel you. I feel. You. And so, I mean, what, what do you? I mean, we, we certainly have like an idea, of, obviously, of like how you work through these a little bit, and you know what you're trying to get out of them, or what, what, what's important for you. So, what, what is, is there anything that you'd, you, you kind of want somebody to take away from your, your work having seen it? You know. Well, boy,
1: that's a. Do I want something in particular? Well, sure. I mean, I, I, I think. here's one of those pregnant pauses for the uh, podcast where somebody's saying to themselves, are they still there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I, I mean, I'd like, I hope I make work that makes a viewing audience, I mean, there well, let me say this first. I'm aware enough of art that I fully realize that some people may not, I mean, you have to have a certain sure taste range or whatever you want to call it that there are many people that would walk up to this body of work and not be interested in it. My job is not to change my job. Not not, my job is not to try to change somebody else into liking this stuff. So if the question is you just crossed something off, does that mean you had a question (laughs) based on that? I don't know, but uh, my, I don't believe my job. Well, so if, if my, if my work fits within one's taste range, And that person walks up to my work. So I'm changing your question to suit my needs. Mm -hmm. If that were to happen, and I really think as snotty or snooty or whatever as this sounds, I think that I make work for an audience that probably has to know a little bit about painting. Mm -hmm. I don't think I make work that somebody could just walk up and say, oh, I get it, you know? Right. So... Somebody with an awareness of all that stuff. So forgive me if somebody's listening. You can turn it off, I guess, if you want. <laughs> Sorry, Dave, but i um, losing audience for you left and right here. I, I think I make work that I hope that it makes an audience want to slow down in order to look at it. So not that I'm, in, it's not a physical thing so much as I think it, it necessitates that you would have to kind of uh, focus, you know, kind of narrow your field. You can't just analyze all... You can't just look at it quickly. I don't think I make work that is easily digested. I think... I'd like to think that this body of work, you could spend a little time on it and kind of look at it in terms of what it may, in fact, connect with. What what histories of painting am I... And I'm not going to come out and say a lot of this stuff out loud. But I'd like to think a viewer is going to sit at it, look at it, and maybe examine what its relationship is to the history of painting. Um, because I'm, 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 I think of this more as sampling than I do avant-garde, you know, making my own, doing something new with it. I'm thinking of it more in the neighborhood of, you know, my goodness, there's, there has been so much done with a stinking rectangle or a triangle or a hard edge or this or that. You know, most of these are little self-contained images where even the shapes are stuck within the frame. They don't leave it. So it's not like this is a component of a whole, although in a weird way it is. It's a different whole, though. I'm not thinking of it as like an all-over composition. I'm thinking of it more in the neighborhood of this self-contained composition where everything is kind of stuck in the middle, kind of cramped together. Right. I, I mean, that that's... We could probably
0: no, I one on and on. No, okay. perfectly reasonable answers right. there from Mike Willie. Um, and this this next loaded question for you—I don't. I'm not going to assume anything, Mike. Is this it, one of your but, famous non sequiturs? But, 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 but I think no. I don't, it's not quite. But you know, it is something that I've been asking recently to people, just because I think it's important. Yeah. But, you know, obviously you're an educator. You you've been you know teaching for quite a while now. Um, you know what what do you what do you think that people kind of get out of, uh, I guess, investigating art making. Cause I'm, I'm guessing you're, you mean you're a student? Yeah. I mean, obviously you're, you you, you, probably have to be, uh, someone that, that encourages it, you know, um, as a, as a way to kind of maybe find meaning in their life. I don't, I, I, I'm just kind of curious cause it's also, you know, something that I think about for myself and great question. Uh, have, even had the anecdotal story <laughs> in, a, in a recent podcast, if you want to, if you want to tune into that. Um, okay. Because I, 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 I had a student that, that wanted to leave accounting to maybe consider becoming an artist, and, you know, you're kind of blindsided by that. And you're kind of like, well, you know, so I'm just kind of curious, you know, what, what you think about that.
1: No, that that's a great question. Um And, I, and believe it or not, my pause is because I think about this question all the time, not because damn, that's a doozy. I don't even know how to. Begin I was going to say,
0: I could pause it. and yeah.
1: Come back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the beauty of doing this in person, right? <laughs> uh, oh, I got another call coming in. Um, I uh, I think in order for somebody to make art in this day and age, as a, like if somebody wants to go and make art. Mm-hmm. I think it's uber critical that that student realize that they are part of something larger than just, hey, I want to make art. I'm pretty good at drawing in fourth grade. Everybody patted me on the back because I'm a better drawer than Susie over there in the corner or something. So therefore, I should go become an artist when... I think we... I think... And then there's there's a lot of reading to be done on this topic because there's, there's been some significant writing on it of late. Uh, I think art schools have a major task in front of them in this day and age because I don't think it's fair for students to, Ooh, I could be really digging myself into a hole here. Uh, I think it's important that students have an awareness of the art world out there, right? If they don't, and I'm not saying they should have an awareness of the art world out there. I'm saying that they need to, they need to be aware that there is something larger out there. That, that disseminating one's artwork is critical. Not disseminating it for their mom and their dad, but disseminating it for view, a viewing audience. And people that have an awareness that what they're doing has a distinct relationship on Now. So when you couple those things together, that is the relationship that I think art schools need to get in line with. Mm -hmm. I don't want to feel like what we're doing is just, I mean, I take this very seriously to the point where colleagues of mine and I sit around and say, so we've been doing this. How long, how many of our students are out there really participating in the world? And we take that stuff very seriously, not to say that if so-and-so doesn't go make art anymore, that we're disappointed in them. But we want to believe that there's a track record. We want to believe that, you know, students are out there doing something with, you know, w- within this arena. Um, so me in particular, I think we need to spend less time thinking about, can somebody draw accurately? Right. Can somebody, you know, carve a stone well I think we need to get out of the mindset of saying anything equals good, right. anything equals better or well, or I think we need to get into the mindset of talking about context more because I mean, there, I have a colleague, Andreas Fisher, he and I said, you know, we both teach painting at Illinois State University and Andreas and I, you know, we're always talking to our students about context that, you know, just because you make something, if you make something quote good and you make something pretty, that's just part of it. You don't have to make something pretty in order for it to be good. You can make something pretty, but it could be a sarcastic jab at something. You can make something hideous and have it be a strong piece. You don't necessarily, I mean, I, I, I'm, on one hand, this is one of those topics that if you're saying it to an audience that understands this stuff, that it makes perfect sense. If you don't, and everybody's goal is to just, I don't have the ability to make something beautiful, so I'm going to spend the next 40 years of my life trying to make that look even more real. Right. in a sense I feel like those I want to believe that the attitude that freshmen have when they walk into school as an 18 or 20 year old or hell a 42 year old person that that attitude which is my goal is to make this ceramic mug look real when I draw it with graphite right. really small Right. that is not the attitude that I hope students have when they walk out of here that, that could be part of it but they ought to have a larger understanding of the art world so you know, in a sense, I think students need to have a real appetite to go to Chicago, to go to New York, to go to Los Angeles, not to just live there. I'm saying to go and see, to go and stand in front of, you know, a Merlin James show, you know, like this show that I saw last summer. That It's not the kind of show that you walk, in my mind, it's not the kind of show that you walk into and say, wow, that's good. You walk into that and say, I need to think about that. And here we are, in nearing December and I saw this show in June and I can't get it out of my head because there's so much about that show that makes me wonder, what is the agenda there? What are we after? What is the purpose? How is this, quote, good? Not is it good, but why am I spending time with it, you know? Right.
0: So, and, and, and you know kind of brought something that's gonna be a tangent for me, but just the idea of drawing something like a like a ceramic mug highly rendered. Yeah. You indicated small. I automatically think of drawings that I get where I get like some object, some some figure, you know, on a completely white ground oh, yeah. that's no context for it, which is why, you know, I'm I'm always getting on my own students to kind of think about that context. Yeah. And I, I kind of like the way that, that relates to, you know, the idea of just being aware of, you know, your art being outside of just this you know this surface, this two D surface. That there's this whole other, this whole other context yeah. uh, that you should be thinking about. Well,
1: but m- don't 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 just. I mean, what you're saying about context is true. But there's the I'm talking also, and I think you were aware of this that the context of the art world too. That I mean, yeah, the context what I mean? of a trash can in that. But this larger thing that says, you know, th- that's daunting to a lot of you know students. Don't even. I think it's daunting to faculty members. Right, so when right, those right. faculty members who are daunted by the art world are teaching students, right. I think that's really important that there's an awareness of what I mean. Art is a, is an ever growing and ever developing entity. So that if it, so, when we are teaching, I mean, you know, I, I I cringe every time you know an institution posts that they're hiring a painter. Because I'm saying to myself, not only are you hiring a painter, but, you know, I, I was a guy that was hired at like 25, 26 years old. So when ISU hired me, you know, they're hiring someone not just as a 25-year-old, but by the time I'm, what, 32 or whatever, they give me tenure, 33, whatever it was. And then they, you know, but that means in a sense they could have me at 73 too. Yeah, you could really dig yourself into a hole if you hire people. That when they're 40, 50, 55, 60, even 65, that aren't interested in, you know, this is a field where, especially in academia, it's easy to just kind of shut off and say, well, I'm just going to teach the stuff that I'm good at, you know, you know, and, I, and I'm not talking about my school or other, I'm just talking in general that. Art making takes a great deal of dedication. So when you're asking the question about what should students be doing, man, this is a tough question because I don't know if somebody at 18 knows what they want to be doing at 60. I mean, I just don't know. I mean, my wife was good in ceramics, went to Tyler to grad school, and after a year just kind of said, I have no interest in teaching, no interest in showing my art. I love making stuff, but I don't want to do this anymore. She dropped it and went back and got into web development and started doing all these, you know, she works at Caterpillar now. Not that she sells tractors, but she's in this world of tractors, you know, That is, and basically, you know, customer relation management stuff that's so different than ceramics. And right. she
0: loves that right. as much right. as she ever loved ceramics. So right. it's anyway. Well, so, you know, in, in, in lieu of all that, I mean, what was it that kind of solidified that, like, this is what I want to do then? Was there any kind of, like, particular... You mean like, teaching? Um, or? No, no. In terms of being being a maker, you know, being a painter, being somebody that makes paintings or art, whatever you want to call it.
1: I kind of enjoy
0: the questions. I enjoy the practice. I enjoy, and I
1: mean practice as in the the activity of being in the studio. The idea of how stinking hard it is to make a painting, and I don't mean it like physically, process wise. I'm thinking of it more in the neighborhood of isn't there enough art out there? Isn't there plenty of stuff? You know, what would ever possess somebody to want to do this? Um, And I think that, uh, you know, and I I think a lot of people say this, that, you know, after four or five years of being out of grad school, you finally get an awareness of what you're doing. You, You know what questions you want to ask. They're not just the holdovers from grad school. You know, but the questions that you want to ask. And for me, You know, I came at 26 or whatever, 25, 26, I can't remember, to teach at Illinois State. And I got here, and, you know, everybody was basically double my age. I mean, I'm, you know, some were more than double my age, you know. (laughs) And so in a weird way, I kind of felt like my first two or three years here was getting another MFA, you know. Working with colleagues that, in a sense, were like faculty. Um. You know, and I, you know, so in a sense, I kind of learned... I think every institution does things just a little bit differently. Sure. You know, the questions that were completely normal to, you know, so and so at one school are very different at another school. Um, so I think learning that institution and you know, where I went to grad school and where I teach now are very, they ask very different questions of uh, students. So coming here was an adjustment for me, and now. I, you know, I take—I I have an awareness of that, so I try to spend a lot of time thinking and talking to other people at other institutions, so I don't just become the guy that knows how to be successful at Illinois State University, right, but right. doesn't know how to be successful out there. I'm being sarcastic, like That's a right. lame <laughs>
0: motivational speaker, well, and, and how uh, to be successful. You know, I thought that maybe it would be a, a different uh, avenue that you could have. Adopted. yeah maybe that's maybe that's another podcast yeah. devoted to other odd jobs but um, we, we're almost ready to, to be talking about these but but I have my, my fun little lobs here for you so um, oh, wow. and, and obviously obviously nobody can see this because it's a podcast but there is a television on the wall which which I think might give us a little bit of insight um, but but if somebody comes down here most of the time I mean what are you what are you working what are you listening to while you're working aside from when it's baseball season? I'm guessing that you have. Uh, I, don't, I don't know your team is, otherwise I'd pick the opposite one so that you get a shirt sure. because you're a baseball fan.
1: So. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I used to have the MLB package where I could watch all the games. So when I, for what eight or nine years I've been scouting. So I for four years I scouted as an associate scout for the Phillies, and then the last four years with the uh, uh, actually five years with the Phillies and three years now with the Orioles. So I'd watch this past season partly because the Orioles. Nobody in baseball is probably going to listen to this here, but the (laughs) Orioles aren't the most successful franchise. If you didn't know that, so by like June, it's difficult to kind of watch the reeling, the loss after loss after loss. Whereas when the Phillies were, you know, the Phillies are still really good, but I, you know, they were a really successful franchise, having nothing to do with me. But you know, uh, so I'd watch them sports. Uh, you don't rock Pearl Jam anymore, like you used to. Uh, that's from the college days. Uh, <laughs> um, no. Uh, so TV wise, it's probably just some game. If it's ga- if it's a game, I mean, if it's if
0: it's evening game, if it's during the day. Maybe uh, I don't know, man. So like, in ter- but just in terms of like non. I don't know, not, not your studio practice interests. I mean, it's still oh. a lot a lot, of, a lot, of sports. Been oh, so uh, I, I, You know, this is a,
1: It's I, tough, I, to, I, because I'm... This is... My life is... So you find have, the time to make paintings, do my job, raise three kids, right. be in a loving relationship with my wife, all this kind of stuff. And all those things take so much effort. So the idea of saying, when I sit down here and watch, like, L.A. Law on DVD or something. Well, I was going to
0: say Coming to America. Oh, that's I a great one. it's one of your favorites. Yeah. I thought maybe it would be on a list. I
1: actually have my, my dollar bill from Zamunda in my office at school. <laughs> no, I, you know, I listen to music, I listen to podcasts, uh, even this one. Uh, and You know, I mean, there's I other... I hope so. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I've got my... I you know, put my iPhone in over there and listen to music. Um
0: But to be honest with you,
1: in the evenings, there's times where, you know, I've got to keep my door open and listen to my kids upstairs. You know, I have to kind of be aware. If they start screaming too loud, I need to hustle back upstairs. I mean, that's the beauty of the in-house studio. Right. right. The the downside is it's harder to concentrate. But the upside is, you know, I can get upstairs really quickly. Or I can get up at 4 in the morning and come down and do something really quickly. Sure, sure. You know, get back upstairs.
0: So, again, you know... um, You've got a show coming up uh, right. in, in the very near future. So this is kind of the last little hurrah here for this for this interview. But um, can you talk a little bit about this and uh, promote the hell out of it?
1: Yeah. Okay. So Friday, December 2nd, this upcoming Friday, at Violet Poe Projects in Bloomington here. So in the vein of uh, Violet Poe Projects is, is a domestic, shall we call it, in the vein of an apartment gallery that are, uh, you know, so much more common now. Uh, they, they, so Violet Poe is run by Kendra Pates, who is a, uh, a curator at university galleries at Illinois State University. Um, Kendra does shows maybe once a month. They're one night shows uh, for, just for the opening, so for a two hour show. She approached me. Kendra approached me in August about the possibility of doing a show, um, and she sent me this really beautiful email that basically talked in a, about her space in a really compelling way that says, I don't want this to be a traditional white cube gallery. I want you, the artist, to think of this as a project, as a side project, as something that you can do that you typically wouldn't do. I want you to think about this domestic space, uh, and I want this to feel... Unique. I wanted to not not so she can be the curator of a unique project, but to, for the artist to think about her space in a way that uh, could elicit a new type of project that the artist would make. So, given that, uh, I just you know I've been, I, I, I had a residency this summer at a Soaring Gardens in Laceyville, Pennsylvania, with another artist named Tom Vance, a Philadelphia sculptor. Um, so he and I, you know, spent two weeks out there and in the, I made a painting. It's where I started doing some of this pouring graphite into medium and then use my random orbit sander and sand some of this stuff down. And I got this different sheen. So it was this is one painting that I, and of course this was in the series of making say, I don't know, 20 paintings or something like that, that became this show at the university of Mississippi this past, you know, in the fall, a couple of months ago. Um, but I, There was something about that painting that led me to you know be interested in pursuing that a little bit further Um, so when kendra gave me this opportunity my original plan was to you know press that project a little bit more see if i you know i'm I'm, you know whether i'm any good at it or not is debatable but i spent a lot of time thinking about color and playing around with color um, from a purely intuitive standpoint I'm not, i 'm not I understand it, but i i don 't teach it. I kind of think of it as a diagnostic tool more you know like the theory behind it um, so this project is all black and white grayscale i mean you can you 're sitting in front of it so you can probably see hints of color mm-hmm. you know from like the ground that I started with um, but in a nutshell we 're looking at a, a series of one hundred and twenty five paintings that are no more than a foot by a foot in some cases they 're four or five inches by seven inches. Um, the goal here is to take this living room wall from floor to ceiling, from wall to wall, and fill it with these paintings. In the, so each painting, as I've said before, is a unique image uh, that is different than the painting to the left of it and to the right of it. So in and of itself, each painting uh, has its own kind of logic. But when you see the whole project together, only for two hours—actually, more like an hour and forty-five minutes—that's the only time that this show will be together. And then an hour and forty-five minutes into the project, each viewer can take a painting off the wall and take it home. So it's—it's it's this idea of <clears throat> the whole versus the sum of its parts. This gestalt thing, where you know, when you see the show, it's a whole. But then when you—but it's really only a w h o l e, a whole. For that short period of time, sure, and then after an hour and forty five when somebody takes it off their wall and, and in a sense, that painting kind of begins a new life in someone else's hands that they can go and take it and put it up in a weird way it's kind of the closest I can get as a painter into some kind of social practice you know where <coughs> somebody can the the act that somebody can take by you know the, a performative project where somebody can take something and do something else with it, they can take it home, and then that one piece apart from the other 124, end up on a separate wall. Sure. And then the life kind of takes its own, you know, course based on whatever that then becomes contextually surrounded by. Whatever environment that piece becomes a part of. So what I'm hoping is that you know the show starts at 6, uh at 745, uh you know, Kendra or someone will give a cue to and then at that point people can start taking the pieces off the wall. And depending on how many people are there, the, the the project will kind of come apart. Right. But it won't. I mean, in a sense, it, it doesn't come apart. It's it, it, it becomes new projects, you know. So the hope is that uh, there's enough people there that more than, you know, three pieces get
0: taken off the wall
1: <laughs> that then kind of becomes new life for the project elsewhere. So... It, I don't want it to just be a thing about this gestalt thing. I really want people to kind of examine their, their likes and dislikes. Sure. I want them to stand in front of this project like I am right now and say, I like that more than that. I don't really know what that's going to elicit other than taste, taste sure. range or sure. choice. Um, but I really want people to kind of think of these, they're not minimal. They're actually very active images um, and maybe you can take some photos and show people what they sure, look sure. like on the, the podcast website. Um, and I'll post them on Facebook too. If, uh, you know, next Saturday after the show. But, uh,
0: that sounds very exciting. Yeah. You know, I mean, it sounds like it's going to be a good event. So I hope, you
1: know, you know. I mean, I, because I haven't installed it yet, you know, so I don't know.
0: So you've heard it here, folks, you, you need to come out to the show.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, uh, so, yeah, it's a couple hours south of Chicago, but it's Friday night from 6 to 8, and uh, maybe you can post the address for it or yeah, send a link sure. to their website. So,
0: All right, well, that's all we've got from Mike Willie today, so thanks again for, for talking with me and inviting me into your, your paint-dripped studio.
1: All right, Dave. Thanks, man.
0: Thanks again to Michael for joining us today. You can see more of his work by visiting michaelwilley.com. Again, please, please, if you want a free piece, if anything, just check out a show at Violet Poe Projects on December 2nd. Opens from 6 to 8 p.m. in Bloomington, Illinois. Again, there'll be more information up at our website. And also, please visit VioletPoeProjects.org. Music, again, was provided at FreemusicArchive.org. The Abstract Trek by The Audiologist. You can check out my work by visiting DavidLinaway.com. Remember that all of our episodes of Studio Break are archived at the website studiobreak.com, so please check those out. Lastly, if you're interested in getting a free painting by yours truly, please become a fan of Studio Break on Facebook, and you'll find out all about a special contest for a special episode coming up in the next month. That's all we've got for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.